welcome to the CG Pro podcast. If you like what you see today, um, you can follow us at, in our Facebook group or at becomecgpro.com. Um, so tonight, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Barbara Ford Grant. Uh, she is and has a, had an illustrious career in visual effects and uh, film production and is currently the president of NEP Prism Stages, um, but has also worked for some amazing studios like Digital Domain and Sony and was the CTO at Meow Wolf um, before her current role. So uh, Barbara, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Cool. Excellent. Well, I always love to start these conversations off just by asking you a little bit about what, um, how the journey began for you, how you've been doing this for um, a little while and what were there some early inspirations that kind of got you interested in film or computer graphics and made you want to get into all of this yeah there it was almost a bit haphazard i love talking about this because it is sort of a strange story but um i started out as a visual artist uh focused on actually drawing and painting for the better part of my undergrad and started to transition into installation art which involved video at a certain point and i was thinking about this the other day i got a job a work-study job at the media tech center at my university and not because i was clever but because i needed to pay rent i started working in the lab there which was um highly funded uh through defense grants for research in, in a number of areas, but one of them included computer graphics. And so they had like a number of different computers, 386s, they had Amiga 1000. They also had, the reason that, that I started getting into doing this kind of work was um, they had a, an early version of the video toaster, this Amiga video toaster. Wow. And I wanted to use it to make elements that I could composite on top of video that I was using in my installation. Um, and so I started doing, work that involved audio video integration and compositing not surprisingly in in yeah. these installation art projects and then um, after school i wound up in the bay area i had a number of friends who moved to the bay area and i wound up working for a service bureau under a guy named howard brainin who was doing different types of photography and image processing and retouching and compositing work and then eventually film recording for clients in that area. And, and it's kind of a time where everyone wore a million different hats. Like we were trying lots of things. We were doing film scanning, we were doing retouching, compositing, uh, digital painting, matte painting, and the film recording. We had these solitaires, the management graphic solitaire film recorders. And I found that the digital painting and film recording side of things was becoming very uh, interesting to the studio side. And I wanted to get into, I had always sort of seen my work on the visual installation and storytelling side, of like kind of bleeding into longer form and wanting to get into um, cinematic work. And this felt like kind of an entry point, like maybe if I put these things together, somehow that's going to lead to studio work. And I started getting work as a digital artist for um, freelance doing work for like ILM. And I did some typistry work for Pixar and, and a few other clients. And along that path of doing that kind of work, I became sort of fell down a rabbit hole that led to a whole other area of my career where I was, um, because I had become from and, and still deeply passionate about the visual results 
the, you know, really what's coming out of all the tools involved, what comes out in the end result and the quality of that final image and the impression you get out of that final image. Um, what I realized with all these tools back then, you had things that were 8-bit, they might be fully RGB, they might be YUV, there, there were um, things that were linear and, the, and then film was in log color space. And the translation of the image data going from one place to another was a rather unsolved problem and, and, and pretty complicated. There, the first thing I started getting involved with was matching a CRT monitor to the film recorder, because you know, this is where we were doing our digital art and our digital map painting. And then we would film it out basically like a television on its side. You, would, you know, It was just scanning. Um, primary by primary onto film and um, started working with management graphics on a profile for the monitor and the film recorder to do a transform to try and map as much of the color into that destination color space as possible. That work um, really kind of led me into bigger conversations with other studios about color pipeline and about how color worked between computer graphics and film. And I wound up getting hired not that long after that when DreamWorks was starting to set up a color pipeline around the display, how we did, because they were actually at the time, even though the intent was they had this prototype lightning film recorder. It was like the size of a house or a Winnebago. It was this massive machine from Kodak, um, laser film recorder that was film recording in, in a sort of quasi-log space. It was the first film recorder of its kind doing that. And the intent was, even though we we're going to have traditional artists who are doing key art by painting, who are doing matte paintings for background, that we'd scan that stuff and ultimately it would go through a, somewhat of a CG pipeline and compositing pipeline and go out to a film recorder in the end. And so there are you know, obviously a lot of pieces to color manage around that. And... Um, that's about the time I stopped doing digital paint, started doing engineering instead, and became very interested in managing, because it was a quality management thing, right? It's like, mm -hmm. how do you maintain the intent of the artist at all these different stages and with all these things getting concatenated together until ultimately this finished result? And I think everything I've done ever since then has been involved in sort of emerging tech that's getting enveloped into the process of how we create something that ultimately we're trying to push the limits of the visual fidelity on the screen with. Right. So the, so down the engineering rabbit hole, what, uh, what kind of engineering were you coding? Were you developing tools? I think coding would be, I'll be the first to admit coding is probably a generous term. I wrote some scripts and I, um, you know, I, grabbed some existing libraries and, and strung them together. And I worked with, I was lucky enough at the time, when I started doing this at DreamWorks, we were doing it in collaboration with um, Silicon Graphics, Sun, and Kodak in particular. And at the time, Glenn Kennel, who's now the CEO and has been for a long time, the CEO of Ari, he was in charge of the color group, which later became the Cineon group and, and many other things after that. But the the color work that we did was in collaboration with Kodak's color science team. And so I relied a, quite a lot on them for the sort of the heavy lifting of the transforms that we scripted together. I mean, you're basically, you know, taking frames, running them through a, a profile, you know, into a common color space and then out a different color space and doing that at scale. So it wasn't, 
it was a very, um, everything was very command line back then, <laughs> including the right. compositing, right? Um, but so from there, I started to get engineering resources and started leading engineering teams and, and things around playback, anything to do, basically anything that had to do with the image itself, right? So if it was scanning or film recording or compositing or um, delivering to different formats and eventually became the editorial pipeline, the day we, uh, we prototyped very early digital dailies systems for DreamWorks, um, uh, playback for projection systems for what was the first digital projection system that wound up getting used for Shrek 4D. Um, and then from there, I, I, I kind of took my interest in the, because it was sort of like pre-production, mostly post-production. Um, and I had gotten a bit involved with what happened in rendering, but it wasn't until I got to Sony Imageworks where I, I uh, took, taken on the back end of the R&D group that I got very involved because it was at a time where they were writing a brand new proprietary renderer in collaboration with Marcus. So this was the Arnold renderer that was happening. So it was largely a, a render man house before that. And um, we were building, so building out a rendering team, building out a OSL and an all new global shading team, um, doing a, a lot of interesting things that came out of that associated with um, volumetrics and integrating other parts of the effects um, work into the renderer itself. Or, or in, and, um, and so, yeah, the engineering didn't stop there. And then I, I was lucky enough to be in there at a time when Prague, Havdar, and uh, Josh Wells and a number of other people were um, prototyping a whole lot of virtual production technology. And it was actually my first I mean, other than building out the um, theme park stuff, I hadn't really been exposed to virtual production before Imageworks. And, you know, even there, it was all very prototype. I mean, this was all MATLAB, OpenCV. It was very mm. raw um, work, but around facial performance capture, mesh capture, camera tracking, um, match move, and just all these sort of the pieces of it without actually having the full kind of in volume experience it was you know it was a lot of this was was post-process but it you know it was the, it was that idea around the data that needed to be collected in order to make that sort of thing happen and, right. and in yeah, the it, yeah sorry go ahead i was just going to say you took it it needed a little while for the technology to mature to become what people now yeah know you think about process. how slow uh signal processing was 15 years ago compared to where it is now i mean just to you know just to um to properly track and clean up a, a, a camera path. It's, it's come a long way. Um, but it was a, I learned a lot in that process. The other thing I, that I, I got back to, I think during that time at Imageworks that, that kind of um, escalated when I was at Digital Domain is sort of an interest in the fidelity of everything as well. We were doing digital doubles and digital humans. It was early time for that. You know, we had done some work with Paul Dubovic and ICT on scanning and using that both as um, a texture, but also as for image-based relighting and image-based rendering uh, work on some of the projects. And when I went to Digital Domain, I was very interested in furthering that in, in more of a centralized global way, like with a Gen Man and Gen Skin Light, doing, again, with the shade, like having things centralized so that we could have a... a a good starting point on any of these types of things that we're doing. Um, 
but one I, I so I think I went from from artist to engineer to to super interested in, in leading R and D to very interested in how things work at scale. Like if I were to consider the steps and all of this, um, while still carrying over the same sort of like interest in solving fidelity problems in, in, in all aspects, I definitely was um, looking to see how we could find, because it's not, you know, with there's economies of scale that you, because there's always the famous like better, faster, or cheaper. And I, I sort of ignore the cheaper thing because I do believe things get faster. It means you get better. You get more out of it. You're gonna, you know, you just get more bang for your buck. And I was very much interested in finding economies, economies of scale, so that we can keep investing in the same things. That we didn't like create something, do something awesome, then scrap it and wait for the next project to try and figure out it again. That we were really starting to build towards something that actually pushed the the craft um, that we could continue to invest in. Um, and then uh, from digital domain, that sort of went into a, a, a wider sphere when I got to HBO. So I spent five years at HBO, initially moving them from traditional broadcast methodologies into file-based workflows and into um, file-based post-production and centralized visual effects. And then um, we started to get into a number of different ways of, of using those workflows for immersive and VR and other types of contexts for um, you, let's call it metaverse kind of okay. whatever you want to call it. Um, You've always got to mention it once. On yeah, podcast. that was, yeah. yeah. So, so, well, it was how we got it funded, right? So moving it yeah. into the metaverse of using assets for lots of different outlets, because, um, you know, if you've been in visual effects this long, nothing drives you more crazy than rebuilding the same asset over and over again for a different purpose, right? Um, so that, that was an incredible experience to be able to do something at, at the scale of HBO, which does an enormous amount of content per year. And, and we're really pushing the quality of what streaming and um, broadcast streaming, what, what that meant for those types of shows, you know, um, with Game of Thrones and Westworld and, and all the shows that came after that. Um, and then uh, Meow Wolf and Meow Wolf, uh, Meow Wolf is sort of like a passion project and, and a great opportunity and timing for me because uh, I had come back to California, take a little time off and uh, do a little bit of consulting and spend some time with my son. And uh, I got a call about Meow Wolf and they were in this transitional period. It was during COVID. They were still needed. They were looking to open two new locations. Mm -hmm. They had the one in Santa Fe, but they were midstream in the Las Vegas build out and just starting the work on uh, Denver. And we're really needing to grow from this amazing uh, collective and sort of grassroots, almost garage style building out of immersive experiences, incredibly art driven, community driven to something that they could um, scale and sustain. And um, so I spent a year working with them both on the enterprise side, building out the, the back end operations of the company and then building up these, these two locations and opening up these two locations. When I, when I got the call that NEP was going to wholly buy into this idea of virtual production. Right. And that kind Which of you couldn't it ignore. Almost, <laughs> yeah, I could not say no to because it had all my favorite stuff in it. <laughs> right. You know, but yeah, it seems like you had a, yeah. Sorry. A great, a great uh, background and a diverse background um, in engineering, visuals, 
um, interactive technologies, all the things that you need to do in immersive interactive experiences, but then that also lends itself now to virtual production, which is becoming a big thing. So yeah, it makes sense. And you were, were you in uh, New Mexico? You studied in New Mexico. I started, right? yeah. So that's why I said in New Mexico, my family moved there when I was in, uh, I went to high school and college there. My mother still lives there. Um, I was, I still feel a direct connection to the art community there. Um, my favorite professors were there and, and also living artists. Um, and so I, I felt very strongly that I wanted to participate with Meow Wolf because of that, mm. you know, because I believed in their mission, because I loved that they were these, this uh, scrappy, you know, DIY collective out of Santa Fe that managed to make something magical happen. And so just to be even a small part of that was incredibly cool for me. I'm still a thousand percent supportive of what they do. I think you know, that their heart and their mission is, is absolutely in the right place. Yeah, and I love that it's New Mexico. I always have a piece of my heart in New Mexico. But I, I'm based I in resonate California. with that. I, I am too. I, I spent a bunch of time in New Mexico as well. I actually got married oh, in Los Alamos. <laughs> yeah, just up the road from Santa Fe. You got married in Los Alamos at the yes. lab? Uh, not at the lab, no, at, <laughs> at the Fuller Lodge near the oh, lab. Oh, I, I know the lab. Or I know the lodge, yeah. Wow. Right, yeah. And what's your connection? Now I'm interviewing you. Sure, yeah. Um, so my wife, Jackie Cooper, uh, is from Los Alamos. She was born there. And we met in London, but came back to the United States, came to live in California. Uh, well, actually, no, originally went to go live in New Mexico. And we got married there. And um, we were driving back from Burning Man from our honeymoon. And uh, Jackie got a call from Dee Dee. We turned right instead of left, and ended up <laughs> oh, living in LA instead of instead of going back to New Mexico. That's incredible. We do have some 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 crossroads happening there. Yeah, I think Los Alamos in particular, and Bandelier National Park. That whole area is just so breathtakingly beautiful and and unique to the rest of New Mexico, even. Yeah, I I miss it. Jack, Jackie's a lot of Jackie's family are there. Dad works in the lab. Or worked in the lab uh, he was a particle physicist and yeah i i love it miss it can't wait to go back new mexico is an interesting mix of um scientific phds artists and breaking batters right it's right. this weird intersection <laughs> of cultures it's a heady mix yeah it, it's an incredibly creative area and really culturally diverse place and really and I understand why the, the film industry loves it. Not to it. mention the, the, most... the, the strength of the indigenous population there. And um, so, yeah, yeah, it's a very, like, to me, it's a, it's a really unique place. We actually did a, did a project with the Apache tribe up in the north. We ended up on a reservation for a few days, like the only non-indigenous people out up there. And it was a, it was a real experience. Like, never, I felt like I'd gone to another country and it just going into a different part of the same country. It's another, it's, really it's another nation. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really, really cool. Really a great honor to be able to do that. Um, yeah. So great to, to have that New Mexico connection. I think it's, um, we was, were you at Sony in New Mexico when they were no. there? Well, I was at Sony when we were opening up Albuquerque. Yeah. Jim Bernie led right. that group. Uh, um, yeah, there were a number of great people went out there, Mark Wendell and folks. Um, 
but no, I was based in Culver City. Got it. We were we were heading back to New Mexico to go work at Sony probably, and then it left. <laughs> so it was another good reason not to stay in New Mexico, I guess. But yeah, visual effects and and have have had a hard time sticking there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. So what was it like working on, on Meow Wolf? I was super excited by that project as well. It must have been really cool to work on it. You know what? It was it was a very grounding experience um, because, the, you know, it's an incredible group of individuals. Everyone is uh, multifaceted. Most everyone who worked there had is multi-talented, multifaceted, um, very passionate about what they do and has sort of their own tricks of how they, you know, they're, they're all in, in, artists in their own right. And so they have their ways that they go about, about things. And coming from, you know, being a senior executive at a, a you know, at time for Time Warner, HBO, large publicly traded company, process around everything, you know, institutionalized ways of thinking about how you plan and budget and, and source things. It was, it was good to kind of like, get sort of slapped around like that's that's not even a reality here this is how we do it so i bought some switches at best buy and you know i've made my own cables and we're doing fpga boards over here and like everything is sort of this that the hand of the artist extends to almost anything you could think of like the, they made their own racks they custom made racks to put gear in that that are meow wolf racks it was just incredible and so it's part of it is like and I think this is true anywhere, but like it was a great grounding experience to get back to what's actually most important for achieving the creative goals, right? It's like figuring out, like, does it, it's not about policy. It's like, what's necessary? What's actually going to have the biggest impact and the kind of what's the most at risk? Like, what do we just can't, what can we not take risk on? And I, I found that my, my favorite part of the experience was the very collective nature of how decisions got made. Like there wasn't like this team, it gets handed over a wall and then that team and it gets handed over a wall. It's everyone kind of talking through. It's like, um, it was very much a um, sort of iterative, collective conversational experience to, to get to the best result. Um, and I think that works at a certain scale. Obviously it has its challenges. You know, there were, by the time I left, there's about a thousand people in three locations. So it, it does, um, you do have to evolve out of some of that methodology, but um, my favorite part of it was how hands-on I got to get, like, because we were talking about, like, I, not being on, before we came mm -hmm. on, about not being on the box in a long time, like, to actually be touching things and seeing things and understanding, you know, where Arduinos are used and where the Raspberry Pis are hidden and, and just <laughs> how things actually operate again um, was, was really cool. It was really cool to get into that level uh, again and understand so much of this is, you know, it's about, it's a, it's a sketch with technology, right? They're sketching out something that's never been sketched before and they're using some amounts of technology to help illustrate that. Do you think it's possible for a company as it, as it scales and gets beyond a certain point to retain that? Because I love, I love working for smaller places. I love working for, big studios too like ILM you get to work on the best movies in the world and that's wonderful but there's like you said there's a lot of process and 
systems and management around larger places and I really love yeah. small places do you think it's possible to retain like that kind of creative spirit in a bigger institution I get asked that a lot I actually get asked that by some interesting people that I feel like I should say well I should ask you um mm. you know I was thinking about it. I I I I almost feel like digital domain and they've become very big, but I would like at the time I went there, they were a smaller company compared to where I had come from. And I was like, wow, people can just kind of like do things here. <laughs> you know, they can just sort of, and it felt very cavalier and it made me nervous, but at the same time, it's like, this is incredible. They are solving problems and, and creating new ways of addressing creative issues at a speed I've never seen before that we never would have done it at like a DreamWorks or ImageWorks because of the scale of how things operate. Um, Meow Wolf was probably that on 11 and a half um, because they just, they, they're built to work in that way and they are not beholden to a client. You know, they're not a vendor to anyone. They're their own mm -hmm. IP. So they had the, you know, the advantage of a big company and that they were the IP and the advantage of a small company is that they were kind of a punk scrappy collective that started the whole thing. So the, philosophically they were in that place, um, but they suffered as well. And I think, you know, I, at the time I came into digital domain, we more than doubled and you could feel, you could feel the tension of the culture of what they were and the, the, the change that the scaling was having to that culture. And I, I definitely felt that with Meow Wolf too. And um, I, I don't know that anyone has the right answer because I think there are a lot of components. There's a lot of recipes in, in culture or, or components in the recipe of culture. But I would say a couple of things that I've observed between the different scales of, because I also think HBO had in some ways a fantastic culture, even though it was an enormous company. and the, I think the, 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 the couple ingredients that I want to talk about were consistent both on the small and on the large. And, and there one that, that it was really, really clear what the end goal was for everyone, regardless of what you were working on, regardless of what your role was, you know, that it was for, I think for, for Meow Wolf or digital domain, it's the best creative work that you can put out there. For HBO, it's, it was the same thing. You know, it's we want to be the top, you know, we want to be the best in class of what we're doing. And then underneath that, it's like how you determine the curation of that. And um, I think where it starts to fall apart is when, when you have a small culture and everybody's on, either on the same project or close to on the same project, you get a lot of continuity across leadership about where things are going, the style of operation as you scale, and you start splitting these people up, and suddenly they each have their own areas that they got. Keeping that as holistic as possible is really hard unless you have key people who strongly believe both in the mission above and the talent below, right? So it's it's like somebody's going to have to hold that all together. And I, you know, I'm amazed, uh, like a place like Digital Domain that, um, you know, the visual effects supervisors that I knew from there 20 years ago or the visual effects supervisors, not all of them, but by and large, there's a lot of people there that were there 20 years ago. And so that speaks to like holding on to, even though they're a much bigger company, trying to maintain a certain style of culture. Meow Wolf has, um, you know, sadly they lost one of their founders um, not that long ago, but uh, otherwise have all the original founders who are leading that creative conversation collectively that studio trying to hold on to that culture but it's hard it is hard as you grow 
I think the impetus, um, especially from sort of a board level or a senior executive level down, is to 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 take the best talent and try and scale it horizontally so that you can get more out of it. And I think th th there's a real risk in doing that before you shored up that sort of uniformity up and down that everyone understands and, and is on board with uh, what the goals are and creatively how to go about it. That's right. a really long answer. I'm not sure I actually answered exactly what you were saying, but it's, I don't know that it's a hundred percent possible. I know that there are companies that are trying. Yeah, no, it's, it's hard. I remember at PDI when I first got there, it was like somewhere between 250, 300 people just finished. You know, it was like during Shrek and it was everybody. I, I know very few people don't look back on that as sort of like the golden era because everyone, you were in one, basically one building. We had a couple other buildings, but they were walking distance. Um, everyone knew everyone. Everyone knew everyone's family. You know, it's like it's a certain sort of camaraderie, you're all on the same project. I think that lasted for maybe a handful of years after that, but as it sort of diluted and people went on to different shows, it's hard. I'm curious your experience, like what was the largest scale company where you felt like it was it was a, it was a single culture? I was, yeah, one of the last things I was part of was uh, actually a car company, weirdly, it was, it was a CG team within an electric vehicle company. I was with them for a few years, um, doing world building for, to train autonomous driving systems. And it, it grew from a few hundred people when they started, it was very early on, to four or 5,000 um, at the peak. And it, it was got very different. It became very different. Um, and I, yeah, tr tricky with a company of that size um, that was part of my reason for moving on a little bit. I, um, I notice. I'm yeah. curious if they did this. I noticed in some some of the larger studios, there's this, uh, you know, and, and we did this at HBI too, you start to sort of corner off certain brain trusts, you create labs or innovation mm -hmm. centers. There's a, you know, a million names from, but basically here's a handful of people or they're going to continue to to kind of iterate and create and, and forward think for the rest of us and we'll, we'll you know, blend as needed. And I think some interesting things come out of there, but I also think a lot of suspicion and animosity comes out of that sort of yeah. structure as well. Yeah, I don't disagree. Yeah, we were, we were one of those who was a, a group that was not supposed to grow beyond 15 or so people. And it was kind of uh, trusted to innovate, basically an R&D department. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's difficult to get that trust going outwards especially if you take a while to make things and you need, you really need a champion. I think that's probably where I don't know, you know too much about it, but where maybe Steve Jobs was trying to keep that at Apple trying to defend the innovation inside and try. Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing to, to defend, but I think it's kind of important to do it because if it gets too big, too much process, it hampers the, um, the culture and the innovation is, it's, it's, it's really tricky. Yeah, but I, I think I it's possible. Like, I think it's I think it's doable. I'm I do think it's doable. I think one of the things I would recommend is not burdening the anyone who doesn't need to be burdened with the like the the hardest the hardest part to scale is sort of those closest to the the results the whatever you know if it's the creative results or the 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 innovation or technology. But there's a certain amount that 
is really not special. It, it, you know, it's process, it's back end, it's just you know operational business operations that that just need to scale to support these people. And I think um, too often we burden everybody else with that as well. Like everyone needs to vote on what you know HRIS system or what you know what the email is and things like that. And you may think you care, but it's 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 time away from things that are probably better suited to to the products you're creating and, and the culture that you're, that you're wanting to hold on to. And I think if I had any sort of suggestion to people going from medium to large scale company is to kind of yield on some of that back end operational business structure and let, let professionals come in and take care of that for you so that you can focus on holding on to talent and the creativity and the products that you're trying to create. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, I think if you can let people do what they do well and kind of get out of the way, then people do good things and they're happy and like happy, talented people create cool stuff kind of right. without much handholding. Yeah, I think it's you got to find the right people first and create, encourage the right culture. But that's, um, yeah, it's a tricky, a tricky thing to do it at scale. So, so, so you've. I have, um, a, I have a dog who likes to play a role in podcasts. Excuse me. Oh sure, yeah. Can we ask him questions? I think we know All the right. answer. Dog's to that gone. One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you hungry? Do you need, would you like a walk? Um, <laughs> one of them. <laughs> so, it seems like you um, you followed innovation. You've 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 been excited about people solving cool problems, particularly in the visual industries, the visual creative industries. And now you're uh, president of NEP um, Prism Stages. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what your what your role is um, and what you're up to at the moment? Yeah. What, um, what you can say, what you're allowed to say. So Prism Stages is the stage virtual production stage operation arm of NEP uh, it's newly formed it started with the acquisition of uh, Lux Machina and Halon last year and uh, virtual studios uh, you know we are building out owner operated stages we have our first one at Trove which is testing on our first production in Atlanta um, we are looking and um, actively planning out a couple other locations that'll start build out this year. Um, we, through Lux, are operating a number of stages in the UK. And um, but the collective, the idea of the the whole virtual studios collective and Prism Stages is to provide virtual production services. So production services related to using. Uh, some amount of virtual production techniques on physical stages. So it's really focused on like an extension of the physical production, practical production um, process, right? Uh, we're not a visual effects company. I'm not going back into shot work, although I will talk about some near real time workflows that I think are exciting and interesting. Um, we're really looking to facilitate sort of the pre-visualization, tech visualization, virtual department where it's necessary, you know, we have people who can do asset building and then facilitating the onset experience, um, which is why we, we both operate and then are also designing, building and running our own stages. And that, that they exist as a framework 
to uh, to service production more generally. You know, my experience, and I, I know a lot of uh, you know Lux and other folks' experience with virtual production has been based on projects come in, they design a volume for that project, gets modified for that project, and it may or may conti not continue on, but it's very specific to a single client. These are actually designed to be very flexible, modular, interoperable. They're running on real Perforce right now, but we could just as easily uh, pivot to running a, a Unity setup or you know, Stagecraft wanted to roll in a wrap, we could do that too. Um, intentionally wanting to be an open framework in the way that we work with the industry so that we're both uh, a friend to people on the creation, on the asset build side from the development phase through to post-production, you know, assuming 90% of the stuff is gonna have some amount of uh, being touched after uh, live production on our volume stages. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think part of this also is we wanna work very closely with our camera manufacturers. I mean, obviously the software hardware provider to work with Grow, we work with other technology, Pixera and other technology companies um, in terms of how we're integrating the hardware itself. But then additionally, how we work with open formats like USD and, and you know, stuff the Academy Software Foundation is, is doing to, to really be as open a framework as possible. I know I keep saying that, but I, I really wanna uh, reinforce that because we're not, looking to to feed our own post-production workflows we can be very flexible in that way right yeah it's it's another part which is maturing you know the open source technologies we used a usd on on lion king a little ahead of time i think it was it was not quite there but it's yet cool but what they did yeah and one it, was, of the it pushed it <laughs> Yeah, what I, yeah, one of the things I love about what Magnopus did is that they, because this is you know something that's also very appealing to me, is they were they had a very tactile approach to to how virtual production worked. They were thinking about Caleb Deschanel. They were thinking about how filmmakers are going to come into a volume space and want to you know see and feel the sort of tools they're used to as they're creating in this new way. And we're very much about that. Like the stage in Atlanta, it is. It, it, you know, it's obviously, I'm gonna, it's bleeding edge, it's state of the art, it's all those things, but it's also meant to be very practically flexible. Like you can bring in anything from a techno crane to popping out tiles and throwing in sky panels. You can move the, the camera tracking away from the film rig uh, within the volume itself. There's a lot of flexibility and thought and design that's gone into how people, how filmmakers might use it how um, they might need to move and shape it for different types of production. Um, because we know that this is, you know, this is a mix of practical and virtual tools in, in filmmaking. Right. So and you said you're working on a production in it right now. Is that officially yes. or unofficially? There will, there will be an, uh, an announcement uh, forthcoming. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. Not too distant in the future, actually. Yeah, we're very excited uh, about this project and, and, and some of the other ones we're, we're talking about. But yeah, I mean, it's fantastic to be on the Trillith lot. It's like, you know, it's an incredible studio lot in and of itself. Um, they house, you know, a lot of Marvel's production among other people. And they've just got, it's a very modern studio facility. Um, and it's, it's, so it's, it's a nice, it's a nice, environment ecosystem for us to participate in where you know we we can be the provider of these kinds of services but acts have access to everything else one would need in physical production right there on the lot 
And um, can you say anything about how you stay kind of tech agnostic in, in terms of, I know everybody's kind of pointing towards Unreal as a, as a uh, real-time environment at the moment. We use Unity on Lion King and, and Jungle Book and you know, they step yeah. forwards from there. For, I, I, the thing I love about that was that the, those projects built all the tools for the one project and they all went away at the end of the project and they built them all again for the next one went away and there wasn't any, there wasn't that thing you described where they were they had a home that they could progress through and I think Epic have been really great at giving it a home and allowing it to progress but you must be building tools that are independent of the engine and independent of the the hardware and things that kind of sit as a layer in between yeah I mean as you know, it's a it's a tricky thing when you're building your business on building these certain things, and then the project ends if you don't have the opportunity to reiterate it. Like, what do you do? Do you do you open source it? Do you try to close source it? How do you? Um, I, I think to answer the how do you do it question directly, well, it it's challenging because we're we're largely kind of we're going to need to go along with what the clients want to do. And if they want to be mm -hmm. unreal, we're going to be using unreal on those stages. I think, you know, largely we're going to be following the lead of, of the productions and what they're asking us to do. But I, I think we also, because of the, the scale we're looking to, to go to, we, you know, we have an opportunity to help sort of support the open source community and support some of the tool building outside of a particular engine to help facilitate some, some more common tools among the industry. So I think we'll focus there. The closer, I think the closer we get to some of the things we're doing within the integration of the, the stage technology itself, like the actual rendering into the, the volume itself, I think that probably, that's probably where we'll start to have sort of a more strategic point of view about it. Right. That makes sense. I was make, making me think when you were talking there about, um, I'm watching light and magic at the moment, not as fast as they want to be, but, uh, just kids for you, um, but I'm really, really loving the 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 way they no they talk about that at the beginning about how the <clears throat> it was built for a film and then the film stopped and George Lucas had to spend another year making the next one so they had to keep them busy and that's it sim feels like a similar story and it feels like at the moment in in virtual production that we've we're going back to that time where visual effects kind of felt like it. Been, a lot of it had been figured out and it had become a little procedural even though there was still innovation going on but now we're we're back into this uh, another phase again of rampant innovation and lots and lots of new every every week so it seems. yeah i completely agree i mean it's sort of, i mean i think performance capture motion capture appearance capture is the last time i feel like there was like this big wave of um lots of things happening you know, I hope that it, it's hard, you know, having come from the visual effects side, like in the impetus is a project, you scale something up, you do it, and then you hope you can use it again on the next one, but you don't know if you can. And if something doesn't come quickly, things get stale very quickly. Um, my hope is at least for prism stages, because we have a number of stages and we'll have things at different staggered, um, you know, pipeline that we have a lot more opportunity to continue and to contribute back to the things that we're doing because we're going to get economies of scale you might not get if you're in the shot work business. Right, that makes sense. Um, and it sounds like you have a, an R&D, a healthy R&D team somewhere. And are, they, are they in a specific location? Are they uh, kind of spread around? 
This is a global company, but yeah. <laughs> we're, we're slightly spread around. But yeah, um, NEP is extremely likely to benefit from from the the great minds for, uh, of Lux Machina in particular, who who've come under Virtual Studios and and all the work they've done in designing and and R and Ding around virtual production. So, and then we're continuing to build out that team. Actually, Jordan Snyder who was the VP of uh, platform for Meow Wolf joined us a few months ago and, and is leading uh, on the product side. So yeah, a great team coming together on the R&D as well. Fantastic, Meow. Lux are amazing, amazing people. We've done a few things with them. It's always a pleasure to have Phil on and you know, he's been really kind to the school as well. Um, yeah, really respect what you guys do there for sure. Do you, yeah, and they're do you good any... people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, very, very, yeah, very generous, very, um, yeah, for people who are that bright and accomplished. Culture, back to our earlier, really trying to hold yeah. on to as much of the culture as possible. Right. Yeah. Well, it seems like it's it's working. Um, do you see any any like alternative uses from for these volumes outside of filmmaking? I know that might be a kind of a random question, but like um, thinking from your installation work and working in that kind of space, um, do you see there being you know, other opportunities to use these volumes? I do. And it's kind of interesting. I'll, I'll stop just short of predicting the future and how they'll be used. <laughs> but I think, you know, as part it was a commandant that used the lower grade LED so they could do the near real time composite. I think there's, you know, as these things get modular and you can kind of pick and choose where you spend your money, I think it becomes much more applicable. Obviously, if you're building a $10, $20 million stage, you can do films with it, right? Yeah. You can do yeah. the world's ex most expensive series, but as as they become more modular and um, you know the the tools become more open framework, I think there's you know anything that goes in that bucket of metaverse obviously becomes applicable. But I also think just you know all the different ways that we think about content building and it, whether it be a live event or or something that's that's um, mastered and, and delivered. I think that there's there's opportunities there, and I think there's I think the more interesting thing will be how we then give back to like game and immersive experience, right? Right. Um, like I can imagine sort of real time immersive game experience changing as a result result of things that we're producing um, in the in our in camera VFX workflows. Yeah, I, I think it's just they're cool. They're such cool spaces when you go in into them. I've visited a lot of them at this point, and I just love when they're on and you can walk into the middle and it feels like you're it feels like you're somewhere and it's and you, you're with other people too, not like a, in a VR headset where you're yeah, just yeah, separated. Yeah, from... Simultaneous experience, and isn't it super cool when you can actually affect change of that space? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is some of my favorite stuff to do is to is to I, I came from VJing. That's how I got into computer graphics back ah. in the day. And um, it, it's one of my favorite things to do, to be able to create an interactive experience that is, has a musical component to it. And have, um, have you done been a lot of No, no, I haven't. No. Oh, OK, that that one in particular, there's a number of 
uh, installations in that space that are um, interactive uh, and AI-driven uh, audio experiences that I think you'd enjoy. I'm sending you cool. there. <laughs> Just let me know. I'm actually I'm actually in England at the moment. Um, yeah. Came on a, a quick Next trip here, but make a trip over. We'll get you in there. Well, I live in LA, so it's next week I will be there, and it was much easier to get there from there than it is from here. <laughs> um, and it, yeah, itching to get back to New Mexico as well, which is even closer. So I definitely want to check that out. Um, yeah, a couple of questions uh, coming in here from the audience. Um, so I'm just going to pull up a couple of these. So someone's asking, um, do you have any stage plans for the New York metro area? Yes. Good answer. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> um, somebody else is asking, will there be opportunities to visit or see the Atlanta stage in the future, like an open house kind of a thing? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, we We've been sort of close to the chest um, as we've been building out and testing and demoing it um, these past few months because it really just finished the build uh, early summer. And we expect to do an open industry launch at possibly as soon as the end of September, late September, early October. So stay tuned. You heard it here, folks. I'm not holding you to it, but that's cool to hear. That's exciting. Um, yeah, yeah definitely. Great. Well, I look forward to seeing it myself. <clears throat> very, very excited to see what you guys have been up to. Um, so, what uh, what are you particularly excited about in uh, in virtual production? What's what are some of your uh, favorite aspects to it? Com com comparing it to where we've come from in terms of production and you know coming. From, it's really is really cool watching light and magic at the moment seeing like literally where it came from all the way up to i think i think they're going towards mandalorian i haven't seen all the episodes yet but um what what are some of the things you you've been a, a part of this industry evolving what are some of the things that you love about what volumes and, and virtual production is doing for filmmaking uh, i i think it's exactly what you're describing with light and magic i mean it's this it's it's getting these people back together uh, in real time, in real life on a stage, you know, having the visual effects folks in the art department and the set deck and the DP and the director all, you know, looking at the same talent, the same thing at the same time and, and creatively uh, iterating on, on and capturing a story like that's super exciting to me. I think the more that we uh, can, lessen the hurdle of the technology or the clunkiness of the technology, the more we can streamline the workplace and, and, and unify them where we can uh, across the industry, that'll be helpful. And I think where it's going to get potentially interesting um, is in what we might do. Cause right now, you know, it, we're doing some amazing things, but it really is, it's not a slap comp, but it's a comp, right? You know, it's, you have things, elements that you're putting on the wall, you have elements you're putting in the physical space and then you're compositing it in camera. And when I think about, you know, my, my love of compositing and visual effects when it came out of kind of the, you know, the Brian Grill days of digital domain, it's, and it's just like compositing was 160 layers <laughs> deep and, 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 you know, it was a, it, it's a real craft and, and, 
it's how sort of the, the painting of the story comes together. And I think there's probably an opportunity there to think about how we imagine and create tools in better realizing uh, real-time in-camera VFX or near real-time in-camera VFX now that we're pulling all these elements together and you know what works best on the volume, what might work best in a near real-time or in the engine itself. And I, I think there's there's exciting opportunity there to to, to really push the, the craft in that way. I, I agree, yeah. Um, did you hear that Epic Games? <laughs> we, uh, I'm, I am very interested in, in the future of, of composure and how we can continue to improve it, that, that idea anyway of real-time compositing. And um, yeah, I think it's an, an important part of it for sure. Something that needs a little more innovation. I'm always encouraging of that one. I hope they're listening. What? Yeah, oh, well, probably at least one of them. Um, yeah. So, what uh, what else are you excited about in in the? Um, is, there, is there anything in the kind of machine learning AI tools that you see coming out at the moment that you that catches your eye? Well, I think so, another area. I, I, another area that's that's super interesting is around uh, virtual art department and asset building, and mm -hmm. sort of this idea of um, you know we have physical backlot and now we're moving towards these digital backlots and how we how we source assets, how we prep assets and and use assets across virtual production. I I remember uh, when I was at HBO we had the the capital I think it was the the not the White House, but the Capitol in DC was used in a number of different projects. And every time they would film it, you know, drive us crazy. Like, okay, we have another. And then there was scaffolding on the Capitol at one point. And we're like, wait, we already have this somewhere. Can we do we, you know, can we can we have this and just reuse it so we don't have to have people shooting scaffolding and painting it out? And um this idea that there there's probably an enormous amount of locations, uh iconic building there's there's a certain amount of stuff that just should exist and that ai can probably help to prep it for any sort of contextual you know looked at circumstances i think is another interesting area um that maybe yeah. it's time for us to stop everyone building the same assets over and over again yeah absolutely yeah i mean it's 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 interesting that for a while there it seemed like even if something was on turbo squid we would make it anyway just just because we wanted to have said we've made it <laughs> and but now there's pretty much everything that you can imagine on some marketplace or another and well, people out there right? scanning the world too yeah yeah i think it's tricky like you know you can get you can go down uh, just a a dog of a wormhole with some like photogrammacy assets that you know haven't been cleaned up or that just you know have super are just super heavy for the purpose you're using it for and i think so another area that that i think ai can help with is is in that processing of assets optimizing assets for real time you know understanding lod's and how things work you know based on camera frustum and other things to 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 be smart about um, what assets get used where and right. how, how they're optimized yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I like all more the of an efficiency it's... thing, but I also think it'll lead to quality. I and mean, if you're spending all your processor time on on assets that are completely unworthy of it, that's 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 um, detail not used elsewhere. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it, I like it. I like it when it takes drudgery away from what you're doing and allows frees you up to be able to do. It's that back that office stuff. <laughs> yeah, although some of that work was great, great ways to get into the industry. So there is that. But I guess there's a then <laughs> that, other work true. will become that, good I, ways I, to do. I always think of my color work as sort of that and no district color science is a hard problem, but the work that I did was much more that drudgery to like, it was necessary <laughs> and it got right. me into the business. And are you still focused on that area? Cause I know that's still, it's still a thing, still something that's being worked out. Yeah. And I think it always will be as long as there's new display, there's new ways of rendering new display technologies. There's always going to be some reason to need to color manage. Um, I love, you know, how much it's evolved over the years. I, I worked with Jeremy Salem when he was first writing the OCIO stuff at Imageworks, and it's great to see these things actually coming out into the industry and being embraced. I, I don't think color management is, is not a problem that gets solved. It's something that gets managed, right? And depending on the the configuration of what you're doing, somebody needs to kind of look at it and make sure they're managing and understanding the entire pipe and that it's managed at every point that the color is going to be touched. Um, yeah, I, I'm passionate that it's right as best it can be, right? Uh, but I, I, I'm also really lucky that I have, you know, I rely on uh, Chris Murray and some of the Lux folks who, you know, their team has been working in this area for a long time. And um, I feel like we've got, we've got a really good handle on it from a stage perspective. Fantastic. Is there anything um, else that you you're, you want to share with people while, while you're here? <laughs> anything um, at all? <laughs> um, well, you've already I, talked I about like, Trilith. And, one you know, of the other things that I think, yeah, I mean, I talked to, so one of the other things I would talk about with, with Prism, besides the, the stage operation, um, our, our interest in, in partnering on the physical production side to be an extension of physical production for virtual production. Um, our interest in being involved in an open framework and working with open standards and trying to contribute as much to that so that uh, we have common pipeline uh, is also really important. I think another pillar to this that I probably haven't touched on yet that is near and dear to your heart is on the education side. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Lux has been working for quite some time already with Epic on a number of different training programs and assisting in the fellowship. That'll continue. We're also uh, working, we're, we're extending, uh, looking to extend the curriculums at certain universities related to virtual production, um, starting with training of their instructors and then eventually uh, having cohorts within the programs themselves. Uh, be involved in training on our stages as well and, we all, and, and some of the skills and trades and, and starting in Georgia and probably the UK as those are large film markets, but extending that out further. Um, so I would say, you know, we are very interested in understanding from the community kind of what, you know, from, from a stage operations perspective, because I know there's been a lot of work done on the engine side, but from the stage operations perspective, what kind of education should we be helping to, to facilitate? What's what's missing out there? And I remember many years ago doing the, the Mull Richardson's lighting class as we were working on physically based rendering at, at Imageworks and just how eye-opening that was for everyone to actually play around with practical lights and talk to the DP and the, the lead um, grip on, on those sorts of things. And I feel like 
you know, we're, we're in this unique position where we can help educate that sort of intersection of practical and virtual production. And so um, we're keen to be able to service the community in that way. What would be the best way for the community to, to help with that, to, to share that with you? Yeah, so Re Rebecca Perry's our director of education. And, um, you know, I would say there you could, you could shoot her an email or you could reach out to me or, or Phil Galler, probably the best contacts, but it's Rebecca.Perry. Um, and is there anything, anywhere people can find out more about you? You have a website or anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Uh, well, for me, no, I, I just have the LinkedIn website. Sure. For, for such a tech person, I'm pretty low key on, on social presence, but um, I'm, I'm reachable for sure. LinkedIn's probably the best way to, to get a hold of me. Okay, great. Um, and, and I, sorry. Go ahead. The only other thing I was going to say, I'm also particularly interested um, related to academy activities. I've been involved with Scientific and Technical Awards Committee for going on 15 years, and, and we've started to kind of shift the demographic of that body over time. And I think generally in visual effects and animation, trying to shift some of the, the demographics of the, the leadership. And so I'm particularly uh, interested in talking to people who want to get involved in that as well in different aspects of whether it's through VES or, or through the academy. Okay, Reach out. Great. You heard it here, folks. So yeah, reach out if that's something that you're interested in. And um, yeah, you you made a you made a short film at some point. <laughs> I did. I forgot and to I, ask you about I, that. I, I, I wanted to ask you about too. that. <laughs> yeah. um, you play the guitar? And I, well, that's probably the one I do the least anymore, sadly, but I don't want to, I don't want to mislead your audience. Um, but I still love it. I still love music. Um, I, I love the arts in general. You know, I've always been passionate about the intersection of art, storytelling and technology and sort of all the elements around that. I mostly have just focused on a little bit of painting on the side, but at, at, I think it was after digital, between digital domain and HBO, I decided to make a short film and it was a 20 minute live action film with zero visual effects. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Probably had enough of that. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, it was basically, it was a, it was a sort of a poetic drama and it, it was a great experience for me. Really enjoyed doing it. Any, any uh, desire to do another one? Yeah, I think it's important, I, and I know a lot of us do this. I, what, I, what I was struck by early on and, and, and seems to still be the case is that people who come into this space are also musicians, artists. You know, they're all multidisciplinary in some way. And I think whatever you know, avenue you go down, um, staying multidisciplinary really helps your ability because it's an ever-evolving industry, right? You know, it's not... There's never been a straight road in computer graphics and visual effects. And I, I kind of credit my interest in, in sort of meandering through these different avenues as helping me to also meander in my career and, and feel very lucky in that, that sense. I also think it's just, it's good for our mental health. So I wouldn't 
anybody who feels like they have to let go of one thing to do another, I would say to try and figure out a way that to, to not call it your side hustle, but really like consider it part of your growth, part of your professional growth. I think that um, maintaining our, our passions is important to our career growth. I totally agree. Yeah, some, sometimes I found it uh, diff difficult time-wise, depending on what project you're on. But for the very yeah, important, with kiddos and all that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's super super yes. important. You just have to have to time it right, I guess. But yeah, um, well, Barbara, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been really cool talking with you. Thank and, you. This was lovely. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, likewise. And uh, yeah, hopefully we get to have you back sometime. Um, thank you also to all of our listeners. And uh, thanks to all the people that ask questions. And I look forward to another episode in a couple of weeks. But uh, yeah, thanks again, Barbara. And I will will see you all again soon. If you if you enjoyed this, follow us at becomecgpro.com or in our Facebook group. And we'll see you all again soon. Take care, everybody.